Thank you. My name is Mickey. I'm an alcoholic. It is um, a real treat to be with you. I have actually been invited to speak in Minnesota more than any other state in the Union in my time sober. And um, I feel a special bond with you. You're really crazy. <laughs> it's a Tourette's thing. I'm sorry. We'll get there. <clears throat> and I'm crazy about you. And I'm really very grateful to be invited to be with you tonight. There's no place I'd rather be than right here with you. I um, want to thank the committee for um, choosing me. And I want to especially thank Jim, who's been such a um, hospitable and gracious host to me. Jim said, well, Mickey, you've been uh, to Minneapolis before. Is there anything you'd like to see? And I said, I'd like to go to the cathedral in St. Paul. And uh, so he said, okay. And um, so yesterday he picked me up at the airport, and we drove immediately to, to the cathedral in Cookie, had arranged for uh, a lady to meet us there and give us a private tour of the St. Paul Cathedral. Thank you, Cookie, so much. Thank you. You have such a treasure here in that church, and it's a national treasure, and it overwhelms me, and it makes me feel uh, the power of God. And I, uh, I can't think of a better way. I told Jim if I'm going to come and do God's work, I wanted to check in with the boss before I came to be with you. <laughs> And then, um, because I didn't bring my camera, Jim, I asked him, I said, do you think there'd be any way we could go back? So this morning, we went back, and Jim lent me his camera and a roll of film, and I got to shoot pictures to take that cathedral home with me in part. And Court and Mari were brave enough to join us this morning in the 18 or 15 degree weather, and we headed over there. And uh, we also went to the Basilica of St. Mary in Minneapolis which is, oh my God, I mean, you, you don't think that they can like make two of them anywhere close in the country, and there they are, and they're beautiful. I want to thank Ruth for signing, for making our message available that way. I want to thank Gopher State Tapes for carrying the message and helping so many of us. In my early sobriety, I hung on these tapes. I listened to those messages, and I was like, God, you know, I, these were... The giants, Bob. The giants carried this message to me, and I thought, man, can I make it, you know? Can I make it? I start every talk the same way, and that is I came to Alcoholics Anonymous for two weeks of sobriety, and I'm dead serious. I had been drinking from the time I was four years old. I was 27 years old. I had never known a life without drinking. Never. And I didn't want to drink anymore. I was done. I was burnt to the ground. It would be like if somebody offered you a glass of carbolic acid, would you like to drink it? I, I, that's what alcohol was like to me. I didn't want it anymore. But I'd been on the train all my life, and I knew I couldn't get off the train. So if I could get two weeks where I didn't hurt like that, where I wasn't so sick, where my hands weren't curled up when I woke up in the morning and I couldn't use them, I'd be very grateful to you, and I would go back and drink. And uh, in February, that'll be 32 years ago. <laughs> and there are things that I've learned in here. Actually, I've learned everything in here. Uh, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous truly for remedial life. Life 101. I remember one time, for instance... Uh, Don Pritz used to be my sponsor, 
early on in my sobriety, and uh, I got rattled at my office. And, you know, it's not so hard to rattle a newly sobering up alcoholic. And I was, I was really shook, and I called Don, and I said, I was just talking with him, and he said, would you like to come over? And I said, I would. And he said, I can't come right now, but I'll send my wife. And he sent his wife to get me. And she took me over, and Don was in the bathroom, and I was talking with Don. He was getting ready for his day. <laughs> and I'm sitting in his bathroom, and he's helping save my life, and I also learned how to blow my hair dry. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> I thought that the only people who won in life were special. You know, astronauts or uh, Rhodes Scholars. Those, those are the people who win in life. I thought I'll never do it. I'm not special. And I found out that in Alcoholics Anonymous, all you've got to do is be a garden variety drunk who wants out and is willing to follow directions, and you can get out, and you can win. And I bet my life on it. Now bet your life on it. Now that's tremendous good news. I remember I was sitting early on in AA in a meeting thinking to myself, is it possible for a person to change? Now you think about that. I and mean, we've heard the story of the frog and the scorpion and, you know, these things. And, and, and it's like, am I going to be like this forever? And, um, and I had a vested interest in the answer. Is it possible for a person to change? And, uh, and they gave me the keys to that church and asked me to be the coffee maker. And I thought, man, you don't know who you're giving these keys to. Because <laughs> I didn't like just get the keys to the kitchen. And I found out it is possible to change. But I mean really change. The person I'm going to tell you about is me but he's a distant me by the grace of God. Um, and he needs to be distant. I will tell you that it's possible to revive him. And, and like Mari was talking earlier today, he can be revived <laughs> at a moment's notice, apparently. I told you I drank from the time I was four years old. I wasn't a problem drinker. I think it's important to say that. You know, I didn't drink because I'd lost a job or the car or the wife or... I was four years old, <laughs> and I was raised in Europe, and uh, I grew up in Europe, and in some places in Europe, they, uh, they give children uh, wine cut back with water at the evening meal, and that's just the evening meal, and aren't we European, and aren't I alcoholic? <laughs> I believe, and you know what, we are here to um, really share our experience, strength, and hope, and my opinions are exactly that, and you're about to get one of them. My hour. I believe I was born alcoholic. I believe I was born alcoholic. I've never found anyone who can tell me, how much do you have to drink to catch this disease? Do you know what I mean? And, and that really play. I mean, this is very important to me to know, because I got a life involvement with this thing. I have sort of a mother-in-law test for that this alcoholism business. And it is, if you take 10 people, my test, and make them shoot heroin every day for two weeks, I don't care who you are, what your physiology is or whatever, you shoot enough heroin on a regular basis and you will be addicted. And the reason is that's an opiate and it is an addictive substance. I am addicted to a non-addictive substance. How do we know that? Because 9 out of 10 people or 8 out of 10 people can drink with more or less impunity 
what I can't even sniff the cork on. And apparently they're not addicted to it, but I'm deathly addicted to it. And if you take 10 people and you make them drink Johnny Walker Black Label, you lock them in a room and make them drink Johnny Walker Black Label every day for two weeks, the only person who's going to come out of that room alcoholic went into it alcoholic. The disease is not in the bottle. I think sometimes we set it up as a straw man. And we say, woo, and that bottle's going to get me. I promise you that bottle will not get you. I will extend an invitation to that bottle through the disease that I have in me. I got to know this. The disease operates independent of the bottle. I'm not saying it won't kill me. And I'm not saying I have to, with God's help, stay away from it. But this is very important to know. Well, I mean, if you've got a, a terminal illness, wouldn't it be nice to know something about it? And we set that straw man up. And why do you, why do you work your program, Mr. X? I work my program so I won't drink today. I tell you, I do not work my program for that reason. I work my program so I will not self-destruct today. I work my program so that I might have some merit and value today. I work my program so I won't miss you today, and so I won't miss me. And I got a program that's an all-day sucker. I got an all-day sucker. And it is alcoholism, and I have it today, just as strong as the day I came in here. You're going to find out in the course of my talk why I'm laying the groundwork with all of these kinds of things. Because there might come a day in your sobriety when you will wonder what in the hell is happening to you. And you won't have a mystery then and be so surprised maybe that you really need God and you really need to reach out to somebody else and you really need to tell the truth, which I'm going to do with you tonight, win, lose, or draw. I love you so much. I am so grateful to be here. I am so grateful to be with you. I am so grateful to be sober. Because when I am sober, I have a chance, chance to not miss life. My brother says that he's going to be the one who dies with a surprised look on his face. <laughs> you mean that was it? <laughs> I missed it? <laughs> I don't want to do that. My abiding ambition in life is to not die stupid. To have missed it. You know what I mean? To have missed it. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, there's no real planned thing to this talk. It's going to come pretty much the way the, for those of us who know what it means, the newsreel plays, you know. There are so many people who are new and early on in sobriety here, and I'm so grateful that you're here. There was a sheep rancher in um, Denver. There is a sheep rancher in Denver, and he used to say, winter's coming on time for the winter kill and the ones who die are the ones who are at the edge of the flock they get picked off stay close stay in the middle let's get through this winter together sober if I seem a bit serious about this believe me I am believe me I am um, early on in my sobriety there was this guy and his name was Ed I got sober at 1311 York Street in Denver I don't know if that may not mean, probably doesn't mean anything to you, but it's an urban mansion. And it was the mother house for us orphans who would wash up on its uh, shores. And Ed was a guy who wore an, a, a vinyl hunting cap, you know. He wore an Elmer Fudd hat. That's what he had. 
and uh, Ed was five years uh, dry. And he had this plan where you could do the, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which P.S., the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is the 12 steps. He had this plan that he could work out on the smorgasbord uh, program, plan. Uh, you know, we don't want to forget four, forget five, and forget nine. But the rest of this we'll sort of flirt with. And Ed went home one day and threw a rope over a steam pipe in his basement and hung himself. What did Ed die of? Ed died of alcoholism. I was brand new in the program, and it was like somebody smacked me with a bat. I got it. You can die of alcoholism without drinking. That's why it's so important to know that this disease exists independently of the bottle. So what's happening is if I put the bottle up there in front of me like a straw man, I will focus on it and this disease will begin to march up behind me and I may turn around too late. man told me, he said, Mickey, one day you'll bend down to tie your shoes and you will come up drunk. That will be about as much thought as you're going to put into this. Can't stay sober on fear. But we talk to each other. God actually talks to us. I used to tell my wife, Mike said this and Mike said that. And Mickey, she said, it's not Mike, it's God. And he's coming for you. It's kind of nice when you think you don't count. Now, when I tell you I came into AA and then didn't think I counted, I was, Don set up this thing in Grand Junction where I was supposed to go and speak at this pig festival or something. I don't know. I, I'm being, I'm serious. And I was supposed to be in Grand Junction to talk, and Don got a call, and he calls me, and he said, Mickey, you're supposed to be in Grand Junction speaking. Why aren't you doing it? I said, Don, they can get anybody. I just didn't go. It did not matter that Mickey Musset was alive. It just didn't matter. And how you can survive from that attitude, that seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and contribute anything, and want to get out of bed in the morning, which, P.S., I think for an alcoholic is a heroic gesture. <laughs> right? CJ, you know what I'm saying. It's because God inflates the tires, puts gas in the tank, and gets this thing going. And he had to. I would ask people who are like very big in here to be my sponsor because I just stood in their shadows. It just didn't matter. It didn't matter. And I would sit on an airplane, and I, I hate flying. I hate flying because I'm too selfish for it. It scares me because I'm out of control. Everybody else is getting on the airplane to fly to Minneapolis. I'm getting in a coffin, and please God, you know, and I got garlic and rosaries, and I mean, <laughs> except for this flight. I really had a beautiful flight over here with no fear. God is kind. And I would ask myself early on in sobriety, does it matter that I make it through this flight without taking a drink? Does it matter to anybody that I stay sober? You know, here's the deal. There are so many things I want to share with you, and I want to share um, this little man named George off the bat. I want to tell you that, um, I'll tell it backwards. I, I, got, I ran into George not too long ago, and um, George was my most important sponsor early on, and he... Um, he told me something. He said, Mickey, and, and George has got me by a couple of three years. And for whatever reason, George told me, he said, Mickey, you are the only person I have ever sponsored in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, this guy's been involved. He's been of service. 
but sponsorship has been something that people have called on George for. Now think about that. George sponsored one guy in Alcoholics Anonymous. This one guy. I thought, honestly, when I got sober, I thought I would live in the basement. This is the picture that comes. I'm going to live in the basement and I'm going to be a janitor. Now there's nothing wrong with being a janitor. But when you're college educated, you might want to try something else. But I thought I'm a second class citizen because I'm alcoholic. And that's what's going to be my deal. And I started speaking on the circuit when I was one year sober. The guy that George, the one guy that George sponsored, I've talked to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And what you're hearing is George's voice. We never know when we sponsor someone who they are, what their contribution is going to be, what God is going to task them with. This is a miraculous family we belong to. So thank you, George. I've got to tell you a little bit about George. I shared it in the sponsorship workshop. I did not fight in Vietnam. I got sober in 1974. I had survivor's guilt and I had not heard a shot fired. I come from a military family. It was my responsibility to go fight in that war. And through a series of circumstances, I couldn't do it. The Army actually rebuilt my knee and my leg. And I couldn't do it. They wouldn't have me. And I was so guilty about that. I was dying inside. And um, I was in a group that was very, very tough. This was a very, very um, militant, big book thumping, I mean, back you in a corner kind of a group. And they scared the bejesus out of me. And I looked at George, and George was a short, short guy with a burr haircut, and I figured I could steamroller him, so I asked George to be my sponsor. And God, you know, God got that sense of humor. George had served three tours in Vietnam as a Marine medic. <laughs> so I got to work out my survivor's guilt with George. And I also had a guy who uh, really wasn't all that daunted by me. And George walked with me for two and a half years. And he walked right down the middle of the trench that I had to walk down. And I'm so grateful to him. I'm so grateful that the people in Alcoholics Anonymous, what we do for each other is we say, oh, you're having a hard time? Can I help? And they don't back away from us. Everybody in my life had been backing away from me. I was kicked out of every school I went to until I got to high school. I was kicked out because I was a discipline problem. We alcoholics are an undisciplined lot. I just had mine certified. I was mad as hell. I was mad as hell all the time when I wasn't just terrified. But you know, I really didn't recognize the fear. I just didn't recognize it. I was too mad. <laughs> Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we believe is the root of our problems. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-pity, and I can't remember the rest of it. You know, we step on the toes of our fellows. It was like I had a spotlight on me and the spotlight was just on me and what I thought was important and what I wanted to do was important and if the teacher said something in a classroom I disagreed with, I would just stand up and tell the teacher what I thought of him. Mentally ill. And they would kick me out. And... Um, I was like the last kid you wanted to see move into your neighborhood unless you were really bad. And if you were really bad, you and I were going to be great friends. 
I'm so glad I don't have to live like that. Anyway, I'll give you an example. It says what we were like, what happened, what we're like now. When I was in the eighth grade, I moved to Rapid City, South Dakota. And I, I was elected class president at Cathedral Grade School. I was the class president. It was great. And they, uh, they had uh, show and tell that they wanted to do, and people were supposed to bring in things that meant something to them. Now, as I was growing up, I grew up in Europe, and I used to play in the battlefields of Europe in the bombed-out hospitals. And I would bring home, you know, I could be walking down the road with a friend of mine, and I'd see a German helmet in a trash pile. I mean, I could just spot all this stuff. And then the flea market in Paris, if you ever been to Paris, the great flea market there, well, it looked like um, Fifth Avenue. It looked like the garment district when I was there, only they were all German uniforms. As far as you could see on these racks, on wheels, and they would sell, because they didn't have any use for those uniforms anymore, nor for their decorations, nor for their swords, or anything. And so I bought them. Come show and tell day. I want to bring my Nazi memorabilia to the Catholic grade school. <laughs> they weren't having it. So on Saturday night, the class president of the eighth grade, you know, nurses used to have these um, sh- liquid shoe polish things with a cotton dauber on the end, and they could put that on and keep their shoes white. And I got one of those, and I went over to the cathedral grade school, and I put swastikas in the windows this big on a Saturday night. And... Um, Come Monday morning, my friend and conspirator, co-conspirator Dan, was uh, called out of the classroom by the, by the sister, and he didn't come back. So, I, I mean, I knew it. Here we are. We're, we're caught. So I get out in the uh, hallway, and first thing I said, she didn't say anything. I said, I didn't do it. She said, you didn't do what? I said, I didn't put... And she had actually called Dan out there to ask him why he'd been going off campus for lunch and why I was going over to his house and I had ratted myself out. I wasn't brilliant. And so one more time I was kicked out of grade school and I stood across the the street when they went through graduation because they graduated up there in a formal ceremony in the eighth grade. And I stood across the street in a vinyl motorcycle jacket smoking old gold cigarettes and drinking grain belt beer into hell with you. When I got kicked out that day, I went home and drank a bottle of cream to men. But I remember when I was in the eighth grade, going into the cathedral by myself one afternoon. And it talks about Bill had this experience in London or wherever he was in England. And he went in by himself and he knew there was a God. And I walked into that cathedral all by myself one afternoon and I stood in front of the altar and I knew there was a God. I knew there was a God. I felt him. And I left that cathedral and I got back on the train. But I knew for one moment, because you see, God bless you, see, it's like in AA we can talk to each other out of both sides of our mouths because I was a vandal and I wanted to be a Catholic priest. I really wanted to be a priest. I'd wanted to be a priest since I was a little boy. But I, I couldn't get off the train. <laughs> And, uh, and I didn't like leaving God in that cathedral and getting back on that train, but that's where I was going because people like me can't stop. I mean, it's not rocket science to define an alcoholic. If alcohol controls you and you don't control it, you're alcoholic. Chinese say the man takes a drink, the drink takes a drink, and the drink takes the man. And that's me. I didn't know that, incidentally. 
I didn't know that. I thought I was just trying to be a man, just trying to grow up, do what the big kids do. I didn't realize I was hooked, that there was no way I was going to be able to stop that. I remember drinking one time, and uh, I don't know how long the binge lasted. I was 20 years old. I woke up, and I tried to cook something to eat, and uh, it said uh, Rock Cornish Game Hen Gravy, but I thought it said Rock Cornish Game Hen, and the only thing I had to eat on that binge was gravy, which I ate with my hands. You know, it's really not that much fun to be an alcoholic. We tell these stories as if they're full of bravado and uh, panache. And mine was really not that special. And I was humiliated by what I was doing, but I was so wrapped up in it. God, it was like it takes all your energy. And it's exhausting, too. It's hard on the machine to keep running like that. And I remember, you know, a a doctor in Texas one time telling me, you know, I was probably around 19 years old. He said, if you don't stop drinking Oso Negro tequila, he said, you're going to lose all your teeth and your hair. (laughs) It didn't actually phase me all that much. And it's not that I'm the worst drunk that ever came in here. I'm trying to qualify for you so that you have some sense that I might be actually an alcoholic. Why is that important? Because we are uniquely qualified to help other individuals who suffer from the disease of alcoholism. It's important if I'm going to tell you something, and you have this, that we can speak a common language with each other. Because we are addicted to a non-addictive substance as the tip of the iceberg of what's wrong with us. The big book says our liquor was but a symptom. Well, if it's a symptom... What's the disease? You know, this is like C. dick jump stuff. If that's a symptom, what's my disease? And then we go over to page 52, and we see a partial laundry list of what an alcoholic experiences. Other people experience these things. Earth people experience these things. Alanons experience these things. We do a dance with them that goes to death or insanity or a prison. My defects of character um, will, will mail a letter for me that my ass cannot afford to pay postage on. And they've done it over and over and over in my life. It's like somebody shoving you with a hand in the middle of the back and saying you're on. And you didn't want to be on, but you are on. It is not necessary to have been thrown in jail to qualify for this fellowship. However, I have been. I was studying constitutional law at St. Mary's University, pre-law, and I got arrested one night um, for running a red light in front of a police officer. I was at a formal dance downtown in my college, and my girlfriend and I were arguing, and we decided to take an intermission or something, and I was drunk, And uh, I got it in my mind that she's walking around downtown San Antonio in her party dress and I've got to rescue her. And I was too drunk to walk, but I could drive. And uh, and when the policeman pulled me over, he um, I told him, you know, he said, I'm going to give you a ticket for running that red light. But I had been studying constitutional law and I was blind drunk. So I took it upon myself to inform him why he could not do to me what he was doing to me. 
and I remember, and I was giving myself goosebumps. I was good. <laughs> and I remember in the middle of that, this cop was, and the San Antonio police are not noticed, noted for being soft touch. He put his face down close to mine. I remember this, and he said, kid, if you'll just shut up, I will give you your ticket, and you can go find your girlfriend. But you know as well as I do, I couldn't shut up. And six police cars and me later. <laughs> Mr. Special. Mr. Rhodes' car. <laughs> they slapped the handcuffs on me after I... Uh, well, I saw this cop coming around the lead car with a flashlight about this big, and I said, who's this, the Gestapo? And at that point, they put the handcuffs on me. And they threw me in the drunk tank of the San Antonio City Jail. And I was uh, actually the only one they wouldn't take the handcuffs off of because I was so obviously insane. And just to finish the story, a man came in, and a, a policeman came in, and he said, hey, he says, you're Mickey out at, the, out at school. He says, we have a class together. Constitutional law. Uh, and I didn't realize I had a policeman in my class with me. And he says, keep your mouth shut, and I'll get you out of here. And he did. And I went back and picked a fight with the campus cop, and it went on all night long. And I remember my roommate's voice coming out of the dark as I stumbled in and crashed in our dorm room. And he said, he just said one sentence to me. And he says, you know, Mickey, when you don't drink, you're a nice guy. And I carried that with me the rest of my life, actually. One little statement out of the dark. Well, anyway, I hope in some way you are convinced that I am alcoholic. That I have a special relationship with alcohol. I don't drink like a normal person. And people would ask me, did you have blackouts? And I would tell them, I don't know. <laughs> I love people who can recount their blackouts. <laughs> but I did have that fallout shelter sign on the floor that I couldn't explain. And so I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. My wife and I, I, I was a singer. And, um, and I met my wife. She was a hostess at the bar across the hall from where I was singing. And um, I had this plan that I was going to go out and I was going to have a girl in every town. It was going to be like this, you know, great music career. And boy, it was, you know, and three months later, I was married. <laughs> I met my wife and uh, I took one look at her and I said inside myself, I will never let her go. And, and, the, and on New Year's Eve, we will be married 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> Notice the wedding anniversary. It's so I couldn't forget it. <laughs> so I chose New Year's Eve. And three months later, we were married, and we were launched, and we were pregnant, and we were going to do this thing. And it took me three years after that to get sober. And I cannot tell you why I got sober. I, I had... A week without a drink. It was hard. It was just hard. It was kicking the stuffing out of me. And uh, I had a week without a drink. And we went over to some friend's house. And it looked like a Coors commercial. It was like the light was coming through the window. And it hit the glass of beer. and the, You know what I mean? And I looked over at that. And I said to my wife, I'm just going to have one beer. And I did. I had one beer. And one week later... I knew that I could not stay sober without help, and I knew nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous. Apparently, Alcoholics Anonymous is in the movie The Days of Wine and Roses. 
I saw that in 1960, and uh, I, I could tell you what he drank, what she drank, who tore up the greenhouse, whatever, but I had no knowledge that Alcoholics Anonymous was in that movie. Now, you think about that. We're carrying, like, this concrete bunker on our shoulders. I've I, I got to tell you this story. I, was, uh, I went to Mass one Sunday, and the priest told a story about Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus was this blind guy who was sitting by the side of the road. And as Jesus and his apostles and everybody, the followers were going by, he yells out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And his friends are going, shh, shh, shh. And he yells out louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops everything, comes over to him and says, what can I do for you? Which I thought was kind of cool. But anyway, <laughs> he says to him, Lord, that I may see. And Jesus said, your faith has healed you. And the guy could see. And so far now we know the story, right? Then the priest says something and knocked me right out of the pew. He said, the first gift that God gave Bartimaeus was that he knew that he was blind. Man, how many of us go through life thinking we can see and we're blind. I was blind. And I, I was gifted to be an Alcoholics Anonymous. I was graced to be an Alcoholics Anonymous. I have no idea why that was the time for me to be sober, but it was the time for me to be sober. And I called Alcoholics Anonymous one night at 10 o'clock. My wife was out at a class, and I was babysitting our three-year-old daughter. And I called, and I just, I called 1311 York Street, and I said, um, do you have any meetings that I can come to? How do we make contact? Whatever. And the guy said, what's your problem? And I said, I'm an alcoholic. And he said, congratulations. <laughs> you know, I just tell the guy I'm a moral leper, and he says, congratulations. And he said, can you come over and talk to us? And I said, no, I can't leave the house. And he said, would you like somebody to come and talk to you? And I said, I would. And then I got really nervous, you know. I mean, I went around cleaning up and straightening everything. <laughs> Didn't want him to think I was a drunk or anything, you know. <laughs> And they came, and I, and I thought to myself, honestly, this is true, what are the neighbors going to think? <laughs> you know, like they got a big A on their sweatshirts, or, you know. Like, <laughs> you don't know, it's your 12-step. I mean, they don't give you, like, oh, we'll mail this to you, you know. So it's, they came into the house. <clears throat> My wife arrived just before they got there. And, uh, and she, I said, Marie, I've called Alcoholics Anonymous, and they're coming over to our house. And she did not think I was an alcoholic. And she said, should I stay? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I said, well, ask them. <laughs> and, so, and so they came over and they knocked and they came into our home and I said, you know, my wife's uh, not an alcoholic. Is it okay if she stays? And uh, the guy looks at my wife and he says, can you be honest? And she said, yes, and I vouched for her. <laughs> And he says to my wife, first thing I want you to know is you are just as sick as he is. <laughs> right on. <laughs> I called her Saint Marie. Because God, she was like, to me, she was this saint. And actually, I think she was a saint. Still is. But she wasn't a saint. And thank God for Al-Anon. And thank God we got to find out that she was just as sick as I was with no criticism. That's not a judgment. That's a fact. My wife suffers from alcoholism. And we went to a conference 
Cedar Glen. It was in Cedar Glen outside Amarillo. And, and I was early on in my sobriety, very first year, you know, and I was like not the guy for volleyball. And I mean, I just leaned up against the wall and smoked cigarettes and had kind of a like, do not come near sign on me. But <laughs> I watched Marie when we got there and she went like up to the desk to get us registered and she went into this flurry of activity and she was managing the hell out of this thing. And I, and I got her outside, you know, and I said, can I talk to you? She said, yeah, we took a walk down the road, and we talked to each other, and if you'd have had a little bird on one of our shoulders, I defy you to have known which one of us was the alcoholic and which one of us was the Al-Anon. And I looked at her, and I said, Marie, I get it. You're sick. Why is that important? If you discount the non-alcoholic member of your family, you know, they're going to die just as surely as we are. All their lights are out. They get to live in prison just as surely as we do. And God can bring them out of prison just as surely as he brings us out of prison. And thank God for Al-Anon or I wouldn't have a marriage. You know, because there's this thing that you do in relationship, in marriage. It's like I would get home and I would be at a total loss inside of me. I'm not managing my life well. I'm I'm frustrated to the max. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Let's have a fight with Marie. Only you guys taught her detachment. And I'd wind up the fight, and she'd go to, and I'd say, don't you detach, damn it, too late, she's already gone. (laughs) She was sitting with her higher power. I used to rave on, buddy. And one more day, I got to be married. I got to be married. Now, you have to understand, all of us have life goals. My life goal, number one, is to be married. Number one, Life goal to me is to be married to my wife. And I couldn't do it. And the women in AA, God bless you. Because I didn't have sisters growing up. I had The only woman in my life was my mom. I knew nothing about the care and feeding of a female. <laughs> I mean, zero. I'm not kidding you. I remember before we got married, right? I mean, like a couple of days before we got married, Marie had a footlocker of her stuff over at my parents' house in the basement. And I went and I opened it. And I'm standing there looking at all these girl things. And I'm going, what the hell am I doing? You know, I mean, I don't know anything about... Anyway. And I couldn't do it. And they told us, listen, here's the way you're going to have your marriage. Marie, you go to Al-Anon. Mickey, you go to AA. Go to your neutral corners. You're going to be like railroad tracks in your relationship. They don't travel on top of each other. They travel parallel. Work your programs. Bring a third person, God, into your relationship and he will take care of everything. And 35 years later, I can promise you that that's true. Now, when an alcoholic in AA promises you something, it has weight because you're going to see him at a meeting in two days. They're going to be sitting right next to you. Either the promise is good or don't make it. So we started off on this journey. We embarked on the voyage of sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous, and what an adventure this has been. I, I had one time, I have terrible knees, as I shared with you, and I've had four major surgeries on my knees. And one time I was going to rehabilitate one of my legs, and I got into the rehab unit, and there was this, like, blonde giant guy sitting in there at a Cybex machine opposite me. And it's a Cybex machine is a machine, as you kick it, it will resist you with as much energy as you put into it. So the harder you kick it, the more it resists you, so you can rehabilitate your limb. And I'm watching this guy, and he's like this, you know, 
Viking over here, and he's just like, and he's doing this machine, and a God, I think he's going to pull it out of the floor. I thought that's what you had to do to get well. I got out of there quick because I worked like crazy. Well, I didn't get out of AA, thank God. But I did not know there was an option besides working the 12 steps for getting recovered from the disease of alcoholism. It never occurred to me to potluck my way towards health. There's nothing wrong with fellowship, but it isn't going to make a dent in my disease. You cannot talk me out of my disease. You cannot love me out of my disease. You cannot treat me kind enough. I'm like a black hole with all that stuff. Only God can put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We're Humpty Dumpty people. And I tell people, if there's one AA t-shirt, if I was limited to doing only one AA t-shirt, you know what it would say on it? There better be a God. Because he's all I've got. He's all I've got. I can stand real close to you, and I've watched the lights go out in better people's eyes than you around me. You can't save me. And I, but the power travels through us and with us. How are we doing? Are we still awake? I would love to tell you that my time in Alcoholics Anonymous has been seamless. To tell you that the disease goes away. But it doesn't. Court made reference earlier in his talk about the fact that we share the truth with each other and we share some unsavory details sometimes and we do it so that we can help save lives and I'm going to share some with you. How important is sponsorship? Sponsorship is so important that if you stop doing it, you will cut this major lifeline in your life loose. And I cut my sponsorship lifeline loose for a long time, 10 years, I, I don't know how long. Kept working the steps, but I was accountable in the way that we're accountable to our sponsors. I was not accountable. A sponsor is someone who puts like, you know, you've heard of the cone of silence. Well, the sponsor puts sort of the cone of truth on you. If you've got a sponsor that you can bullshit, get a different sponsor. I'm sorry about my language. And so I drifted, but I didn't know I was drifting. And that's the thing with Bartimaeus. We think we can see. And I thought I could see. And uh, God loves me so much that he will do anything not to lose me, my faith. He will go to any length not to lose. So I started losing my business. I lost my house. I mean, I was, man, I was screaming in this business, too. I was looking good. <laughs> and I lost it all. And I would have told you I was not attached. I would have told you I was not attached. And I had the swimming pool. And I had the home. And I had, I mean, it took me a year and a half to really go into that house because I kept thinking that it, the guy who owned it was going to come and kick me out. I mean it. And I'll tell you what I did with that, and this is kind of but I, I had this, I called him the street rat, and he kept me alive. And I, I went out in the side yard of my home one night under the stars, and I talked to the street rat, and I had to tell him goodbye because he couldn't go into the future. He couldn't go into that house. I, I thanked him for keeping me alive all those years, but I passed now, and I wept. I missed him. But, you know, our only support is God. An alcoholic is a person with no visible means of support. God. And I did that house, and I lost. And uh, at 23 years sober, I almost took my life. And I want you to hear this. 
I was in a place, somebody gave me apartment, I mean, an office space. And, and for all the world, it was like I had AstroTurf in the air. And I had phones, but they did not ring. And I was paralyzed. And um, one day I couldn't take it anymore. And the sun started to set. And I, I, I got out of my chair and I went onto the floor. And I watched the sunset and I couldn't get to that telephone. My wife had no idea where I was. And I laid on that floor and for four hours, it is, am I going to open my veins now or five minutes from now? And that went on for four hours. And I will tell you, I have been to hell. If you want to define hell as the absence of God, I have been to hell. And with my whole heart, I beg you, do not go there. That four hours was the worst experience I've ever had in my life. And I kept thinking, I, I can't do it here because then they'll have to clean up all And so I will go outside to do it. But I thought if I go outside, I know it's going to be cold. And I know the shock's going to hit me and it's going to be cold. And I just wasn't willing to be that cold. And after four hours, I said, Uncle, I can't kill myself. And I put the knife away and fell asleep. And I woke up in the morning. And I thought, oh my God, what's happening? 23 years without a drink. But I'm a winner because I'm sober today. <laughs> and in a way, yeah. I mean, I had a chance. And I uh, had met Cookie. And she had been so kind to me. as, she, And she talked about a guy in St. Paul by the name of Bob and I thought after the way Cookie talked about you I mean to have both of you sit in front of me and the way Cookie talked about you I thought well I will get your number and I'm going to I just during those days I had a prayer with God in the build up to that suicide attempt and it was God I can't breathe just help me breathe and believe this I had never said this any other time in my life. I would say, God, because it was so black, and it was, I would say, God, please. Give me. And I meant in that day, give me something that I can hold on to. Please give me a cookie. And he, and I called Cookie coming up off the floor. That was the first call I made. Looking for your phone number, trying to stay alive. The disease of alcoholism. Believe it. The bottle wasn't chasing me in that room. The disease of alcoholism had me, and it was taking me all the way down. And I called Cookie, and, and she started talking to me, and bless Cookie, the whole time, and, well, anyway, she started reading to me. And I'm thinking to myself, Mickey, this woman is telling you everything you need to hear. Ask her to be your sponsor. And I did, and Cookie... Uh, and I asked her to be my sponsor, and she said, well, you know, I'm happy to help you, and, you know, temporary, and, you know, and I said, no, be my sponsor. And I'm hanging on to her voice, which I did on the phone for four years. And she talked me back into life, talked me back into the steps, talked me back into sponsorship, talked me back into the lifeline, talked me back into health. My children get to have a father, my wife gets to have a husband, and you get to have a brother, because Cookie said yes to someone who has the disease of alcoholism and need at 23 years sober 
Not one week, not one day. Please, for God's sake, understand that when we're at an AA meeting, everyone in the room has the same disease. They may have all the hash marks on their sleeves and 35 years or whatever it is sober, but believe me, they can die just as surely as you can. Please never cut anyone out of this program or think anyone has it made. It's not true. It's not true. So I got a chance to start my life over, and I want to tell you it has been um, it has been a very difficult journey. Uh, what it's meant is I lost that business, and I couldn't support myself, and I got flat inside. I was in advertising for a long, long time, and I went flat inside, and I'd made my living by my wits all my life, and uh, I, I had no creativity, I had no imagination, I just went flat. And I didn't know what to do, and I hung around the apartment, and uh, my wife went out and got a temp job, and I didn't know what else to do, so I was too afraid to get a temp job. And I started to pay in apartments for $7.50 an hour, and I didn't think I could do it. And then I went and got a temp job, and I didn't think I could be an employee, because after, you know, after all, I'd been an advertising typhoon, you know. And, and I went in and I got an $8.50 job, uh, uh, you know, an hour job. And uh, every place I went, they offered me a, a real employment. They would offer me a real job, and I couldn't believe it. And I learned how to be an employee. And I worked my way up to 11 bucks an hour, and I was very grateful to have that. And I was proud of it. But I got to tell you, in the course of all that, you know, there's some things. I can't remember who you said at Betty Ann about the alcoholic in his cups being humiliated. And you don't think an alcoholic in dead drunk is humiliated. But the humiliation is down to the soul. And I was grateful for the work, but I was also humiliated doing the work. But I got to tell you about this one, man. <laughs> if you're going to ride this train, you got to ride it all the way as well. And um, so I got... Uh, let go at this one job. I didn't do anything wrong, but they wanted me to leave this one job, and the temp service called and said, we have another job for you, and it's just two blocks from where you're working, and it's $11 an hour, and I thought, oh, thank God, the money can you know, keep coming in. And they said, it's for BK Entertainment. I said, great, man, that's BK Entertainment. That sounds like me, all right. And I get in my car, and I drive the two blocks, and I go into an industrial park, and I look up, and then there's a hand-lettered sign handwritten in the window on a piece of paper and it said bingo king man I looked at that sign and I said God you cannot possibly <laughs> intend for me to go through that door but he did and I did and I became an employee or a temporary you know servant of bingo king and I told people if I had to write my autobiography that would be the title the bingo king <laughs> but we are to be workers among workers and we are to do an honest day's labor for an honest day's wage Thank you. and I went in and I gave it my best shot and what I did is I described this job I got I was in shipping and I and I did my job and I wrote a job description of the whole thing and uh, the boss's girlfriend wanted a job and so she got my job and I turned over to her the job all written out, and she said, I've never gotten a job so beautifully presented. I, I really am going to shut up in a minute. We're getting close here. 
Uh, one of the things that my sponsor said to me, though, at that time, and after Cookie, I got a sponsor locally in Denver. And he says to me one day, he says, Oh, Mickey, he says, so you're an $11 an hour man. Mm. And what had happened was that I got comfortable hiding. And I could go do my temp job. Nobody hassled me. I could go home at the end of the day. You know what I mean? And it, it really got my attention. I'm not an $11 an hour man. There's nothing wrong with $11 an hour. And I'm going to tell you this in a nutshell. I'm going to be 59 years old on the 20th of June. And uh, four years ago, so we have three children. And our oldest is our daughter. And Amy lives in Springfield, um, Illinois. Amy is an outstanding member of Alcoholics. And I love, I would trust her with my life. And our middle son, Neil, lives in Buffalo, New York, and he's married, and he has a daughter, and they have one in the oven. And Neil is not alcoholic, but he's a real man. And he married a lady with multiple. And Neil is fiercely loyal to her. And our youngest one, Peter, Marie, we lost two children, you know, through miscarriage in the course of things. And that's and our third one, Peter, uh, we didn't know. But I told Marie, she said, I think I'm done. And I said, Marie, I, I have the strongest feeling that we're not done. There's someone else who needs to be with us. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I wish you could meet our kids. They are so lovely and they're so nice to be with and they would take such an interest in talking with you they're just great and peter is like well he's just a fantastic guy he doesn't he's not stiff in any way and he actually holds great appeal to the gothic kids and they're drawn to him like the pied piper and he loves people and he's just magic and he's a magnificent silversmith and they're all talented, and of course, I'm totally prejudiced and biased and blinded to all their faults. <laughs> Peter came and he said, Dad, there's going to be an icon workshop presented at the seminary for people who want to learn how to paint Russian icons. And he said, would you like to do that? And I said, I would like to do that, and I knew nothing about icons. And he said, it costs $500, and they need a $100 deposit, $900. And I gave him the $100. And the months were, it's like six months till this is going to happen. And I figured, if God wants me to go, he'll give me the money, right? And the time came, and I, I didn't have the $400. I could not afford to go to the workshop. And I told him, I said, Peter, I can't do it. And he said, well, he said, let me talk to the lady. And so he went and talked to the lady, and she said, you know, we've had a better response than we expected, and your father has to be here. So rather than getting the money, I was graced to go and be in this workshop. I knew nothing about iconography, and I was not a painter. And I sat down, and for six days I painted this icon of the uh, Michael, the archangel. And they told me to do it. And I'm like this close to this icon doing my work, and to me it looks like mishmash. But I noticed that people were coming and standing over my shoulder and looking at the work. And I, I didn't think much of it. I didn't know. I was like Bartimaeus once again. And I came out of the, the icon workshop, and the day I came out, I got my first command. And this man says to me, a friend, he said, will you paint me a Madonna? And I can do you a heck of an archangel. <laughs> but he wanted a Madonna and child. And I did my first icon in six days, and the second one took six months. But And I have continued to paint icons. And as it turns out, I have a talent for doing this. I have no patience. 
I have no patience. And an icon, if sometime I could tell you how you create an icon, you would not believe it. It's an incredibly meticulous, precise process. It involves prayer. An icon is visible prayer. So I get to do this thing, and it turns out that I can do it. And, um, and then three years ago, through a series of circumstances in doing leather work, I contacted a master cowboy bootmaker, and I now make, which are also incredibly involved and detailed to make. And I sit down at a sewing machine, and I sew whatever you've ever seen on a cowboy boot, I can sew that freehand. And I sit there, and I ask God, I put my forehead. Now, neither one of these are going to pay my way in life, and I quite honestly don't know how. But interestingly, my wife goes with me, and my wife's a, a very bright woman, and she works this program. She's not stupid. She is my life. We go these things together. My time with you speaking is, and I can tell you that I don't want it to. I'm hanging on to you. I didn't think I would live. I didn't think I would survive at 20. To be with you kind and gentle people, love you so much. Thank you.